Am I good? Oh, yeah, you got to get closer. How much longer till your homemade kombucha is ready? <laughs> what do you mean? This? No. Or do you make homemade kombucha now? In what? Those pants. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> oh. I love these things, man. Are they comfy? They're lightweight. No. They're super breathable. I got three pairs. I love the fact now that we're at the age where, like, the, the matter of comfort just completely yeah. overrides any type of, like, aesthetic appeal that oh, something has. I've worn these to the store. I've worn them out in public. I, who's going to say anything? I was going to say, those are the kind of shorts that you have that people won't say anything about. They're like, it's probably best if we just talk amongst ourselves about it. He might have a little African in him. We don't know. It would be South African, which would be unfortunate. But So, getting to what... You were just showing me a second ago. Okay, so what are these? So you actually found the Street Fighter Tiger Electronics that you had had, like, in a dress or something like that, and then you found your old smuggling device? Yeah, it was a, a big score. Just So what is, like, because Aquafina, oh, well, I guess Aquafina is a nationwide brand, right? Yeah. Okay. So it, this is, like, a 24-ounce Aquafina bottle. Yeah, and it's got the water in the top and the bottom of it. It looks like a normal bottle. Twist it in half. Twist it in half. There we go. And it is... <laughs> I feel like, what, like two tennis balls in there? Yeah. Probably it, close. It's decent. I mean, so like you if you tried probably to look, like, in there. hold it up to the light, then you would, of course, see that there's stuff in there. But, I mean, at a passing glance... Well, and that's really all that it mattered was just as long as it looked like something that would just be sitting around and mm-hmm. it wouldn't be. Oh, I see. Like a surprise. Yeah. But yeah, that thing's seen a lot of weed in its day. But yeah, it just it hides perfectly. I'm convinced. Yeah, because you can just open the top and just fill the... You can't fill the water in the bottom one, but you could probably just fill, refill the... So if someone was like, take a drink, you're just like, okay. Mm-hmm. It never goes away. <laughs> is it okay if the top is vodka? <laughs> <laughs> Trying to sneak shit into a concert or something. This yeah. brings me to something that I wanted to talk to you about. Um, going to the pot shop the other day mm-hmm. and walking in... I've kind of realized that I'm just to the point in my life where I, I don't really want to say that I've aged out of it because I'm going to, I mean, I'm about to break up a nug and put it in a bubbler right now, but like going into pot shops for me seems just so much different than life used to be. Like well, going mean, and you, meeting you personally, like that's really like my whole experience was always through like a, like a third party. So yeah. it was always like my buddy would have the, like the hookup or something like that. Or like you would, mm-hmm. you were like a little further into it where you like knew people to, you know, get stuff from and everything. Yeah. And now you're basically watching something that used to be so cloak and dagger and so hush hush. Now it's just so commercialized marketed. Do you just walk in and you're just like, huh? Like it it smells right and 
everything around it is just so bright. It's yeah, it's just like walking into like a boutique now. Do you feel like it's a trick? You walk in, you're like, there's got to be a catch here. <sighs> a little bit. It's just, I don't know. Maybe it's the pot shops that I go to, but I want a little bit more edge. Like I want it to want it to be a little bit more dark. Like you I want, want someone the, to be like, hey, I heard you mention something over there. Come here. I think I got something you'll like. Get like a, a little seedier. I I would love that. You still want that element? Like you might be doing something wrong. And I would also love if, and we're definitely doing a podcast about this. I haven't told you yet, but we are definitely going to do a podcast about um, ancient marijuana strains that have either gone extinct because they were stopped being grown Mm -hmm. or different ones that they've actually like crossbred so much that you'll never find like a, a sense of Mia again, or you'll never find Afghan Kush the way that it was grown in Afghanistan. That's what I was, you know, kind of like going into a little bit more depth on that. Is it weird to think that like you could be potentially, I mean, it would probably be kind of hard pressed to find it. You'd have to go with something that hasn't been cross crossed with something else. But if you did find something that was just like the straight Afghan Kush and it hadn't been altered when it was there, they were just growing it like it had been grown for generations and generations. You could technically be smoking the exact same thing that like their <coughs> priests and like philosophers and everything like that used to smoke. Yeah. And you, be getting that same feeling that they did. It probably wouldn't be great because like right now they've, <coughs> excuse me, um, they've genetically engineered it so much to where like, Pot back in the day was if you were lucky it was ten percent THC like it was it's just it's like dirt weed pretty yeah. much yeah mm-hmm. that that would be like the bottom shelf like the five dollar gram stuff that you find yeah. now is just all they had so that's all they smoked but I do like there's a little bit of a nostalgic feeling like I love pens not a real big fan of dabs not a real big fan of edibles I've just always loved flour like mm-hmm. flowers I I grew up with it I mean I it's classic it's like listening to how some people still like to listen to vinyl. Mm-hmm. They, they like the you know the little nuances of it. Like with vinyl, you get the pops and the scratches, and with flower, maybe you know you definitely get like I don't know more flavor. You get the smoke. It's just like a preference thing. What you're used to. It's so weird that we can have this conversation, and but there's like so many like different options that we're having to compare. Well, yeah, I, and like you I used say- to have to talk about edibles where the only edibles you could really talk about, you had to make them. And it was just talking like one half of the cookie could be insane and the yep. other half of the cookie, nothing would happen to you. You, you had to go talk to a, your guy. You had to go talk to your hookup. You mm-hmm. had to ask him for shake because it's going to be the best thing to make it out of. You mm-hmm. don't want to break down nugs just to be decarbon them in the oven and then putting them into oil or butter. But uh, nowadays See, it that's just what comes. I had to do. I used to have to cook it down in butter. Yep. Yeah. And then you had to use the cheesecloth to strain everything out. I just used a regular strainer. It got most of it out. <laughs> but man, at that point, like I'm not eating. A br- I'm I'm not eating that brownie yeah. to be like, mm, this is a real good brownie. Uh, yeah, you don't eat for taste at that point. But uh, walking into a weed store now, and I'm looking. I, I'm just. I'm very basic. Like I, I like. To run a spectrum, I like to get some indicas, I like to get some sativas, mm-hmm. like some hybrid stuff, depending on what's dominant or not. But when I have to walk in there and be like, oh my god, what is dosy does? Why are all these pot streams named after like Girl Scout cookies? Like, what is green apple pot? When you walk in and you see the video boards with all the listings, I'm just looking at it. I'm like, okay, first of all, I, I, I give me like the choice of just like indica, sativa, or hybrid, mm-hmm. like knock two of those out and just say, okay, focus on now these 18 that you're looking at. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking at the percentages. I'm like, okay, these are all within 5% of each other. 
And at that point, I'm just like, okay, can can you come over and help me? Just like, tell me what's the, <laughs> this is what I want to use it for. This is the effects I like. Just pick one for me. Even if they don't know what they're talking about, I feel like they know what they're talking about. Well, and half the time they're high. So you know that they have to know what they're smoking. I mean, they're sampling their product for sure. It's not. I would expect that to be part of the. This is weird to say, like to have an employer be like, be like, we encourage you to try. We're going to give you samples of the newer stuff so then you can be. That's that's a business thing, right? Restaurants do that where they're like, hey, please try this special so you can tell people what it's like or try some menu items so you can actually from experience tell them like. Yeah, the flavors. Hey, here's family meal. This mm-hmm. is what we're eating tonight. This might be the special that's going on. Know what you're tasting. Know what the ingredients are. And I, I have nothing against bud tenders, whatever they want to be called. I, I think that's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. But I, my only thing is like, if you're going to be high, I, and I can't even say that because I've been high at jobs before. Mm-hmm. Not always my current one, mm-hmm. but things in the past, I was just high and functional. I just want a little bit of professionalism. Like when I'm telling you like, Hey, I want two grams of this or I want an eighth of this. Mm -hmm. By the time I get to the third thing that I say, you shouldn't have already forgotten the first thing that I said. (laughs) That should already be in the computer. I, we shouldn't have to worry about it. I guess that's just why it's easier. Cause I can just point to your product and be like that. He's like, okay. And he just like knows it's that he doesn't have a list. And then it's the process of like how they put your order in. Then a guy prepares your order. Then you go to the register. It's just like, it's this assembly line of joy. Mm-hmm. There are still some times, though, where I just miss the old days. I miss when it was whatever was in town that week, whatever Mike I had, if Pineapple or if um, like Trainwreck came through or one of my personal all-time favorites, Sour Diesel. When Sour Diesel came through, mm-hmm. it was good living at that point. It was always going to cost you 10 bucks more an eighth, but you knew exactly what it was going to be. Mm-hmm. The smell was always right. The color was always right. And everything always felt good about it. Now, when I go in there and I'm trying to pick out like white Tahoe cookies, I, I, I know all three of those words, all three of those words are words and all three of them come from pot strains. And I asked the guy what it is. He's like, Oh, it's a crossbreed of white widow. It's a crossbreed of, um, cocoa cookies or something like that i was just like whoa, whoa, whoa i wish they had like a system of you know at like the um brazilian steakhouses they have the little dowel for green <laughs> green and red yellow, yeah. like in red i wish they had a system like that where they would just give you like a lanyard that you could put on when you walk in and they're like how do you want us to talk to you and i'm like talk to me about what it does and he's like okay looks down my badge is yellow and he's like okay this one will is an upper it's a euphoric feeling and everything. I'm like, talk to me like that. Cause when they start talking about what it's strained with, I'm like, now you just have to explain what the other strains mm-hmm. did and what this one does now. I, I somewhat get it because things like white widow that have been around for forever. I, I kind of understand, but even then rolling back in your pot, smoking Rolodex, you have to figure out like, when did I have that? Was it good? Was it an upper? Do I was remember it a downer? It? Yeah. And there's certain ones that I do remember. Like, mm. For instance, sour diesel is great. It's it's a good head high. You really get methodical. You really think well, and so I know what that is. But when it's cross pollinated or um, mixed with like a, a pineapple Kush, that's when things really start to get hairy. Yeah. And I like I say I I wouldn't trade our system now for anything. But I just suddenly start to feel We're out of place. Sitting here complaining about the different options in like strains and then delivery systems mm-hmm. when it's just like, it's the craziest time to be alive. I, when all you have to do is just thank God that it's legal in most places now, yeah. some places now. But when I 
walk in there and I look at the guy behind the register or look at the guy behind the counter and he's just red eyed as the devil's dick. And I look at him, I think, man, I've been smoking weed for longer than you've been alive. Like I'm, I've smoked weed for longer than I've been alive than I haven't. I'm coming up on next year. It'll be 20 years of pot smoking in my life. Like not continuously, Mm -hmm. but like since the first time of being a, a young man, and the coming of age story to being what I am now, like it's, it's probably been the only constant in my life that I can think of for the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. Like maybe like sports, watching football, things like that. But other than that, I've never had a love affair with anything for 20 years. I can't remember the wrestling. Never mind. There you go. I can't remember the actual like date, but I want to say I was probably, I think I was probably like 17 or 18. And we were up camping, and my dad was there, and my sister was on break from school. So she was down, and we were all camping up at this, like, harmonica festival. It sounds, it's in this tiny little, like, tiny town. It's got a population of literally, like, 13 people Mm year-round. It's got Main Street and, like, a bar saloon, and then a little grocery store slash liquor store. So once a year, all these people come in to it for this festival, and it's just basically a big party. And I actually think that was the first time I tried it. My sister had it. And she kind of looked at my dad and she's like, I mean, if he's going to try it, he might as well try it with us all here (laughs) in case anything happened. I was like, all right. And I don't remember like the effects because I was drinking too. So I think that kind of, you know, I don't like it when they kind of butt heads. I like to just do, do the one. You're, you're a purist. I like that about Mm -hmm. you. I, what was your first smoking device? Uh, I think it was, I think she just rolled the joint. Oh, yeah. okay. Wow. Yeah. That's an aggressive way to start. Yeah. Well, I didn't know any better. I just, yeah. 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 As long as it was like a little spliff or something. Mm-hmm. Um, my first was a, I think it was a Mountain Dew. I want to say it was Surge, but I think it was Mountain Dew because I was, I think Surge was gone by then. But I remember getting proposition and I was like, well, yeah, I, I've heard of it before. Mm-hmm. Let's see what's going on. And it was these three older dudes that I had played football with, and they start poking holes in this can. What did they use? A little knife or uh, uh, just a push pin? Mm -hmm. And I kept thinking, what? What? I thought we were smoking weed. Hey guys, it's gonna leak out. (laughs) (laughs) Your soda's gonna leak out. (laughs) So they get everything ready, and then I see them break out this just regular Ziploc bag with mm-hmm. like just three of the littlest nugs that you've ever seen. Just like you could have dropped them on the ground. You wouldn't have been able to find Like them. you're lighting them and you're being very careful not to light like all of it. You're trying to just like get little segments. Uh, yeah, you're I trying to know, stretch it. Yeah. I don't know how to corner it at fucking 13 years old. Like yeah. I don't know how to just not burn the whole thing. Maybe you, you were like, Oh my God, that's so much. Yeah. <laughs> I, and I, they could have told me it was a pound at that point. Mm-hmm. Like, wow. That's, that's crazy, man. It didn't even hold the lighter my first time. This didn't understand. This is 300 understand. pounds of marijuana. Just $300 worth of marijuana. Yeah, he probably could have sold me the rest of the bag for 100 bucks. Mm. But I, it's a nostalgic feeling to remember that stuff and to just kind of think back to these first times. And I'm sure we'll do like a first time one-on-one or something like that. But yeah, it's I'm I'm happy for what it is now. I'm glad for what it is now. I wish that they would make it easier. That's the other thing that I don't get is maybe it was the older folks, like the senior citizens that mm-hmm. you always see at all the pot shops. Maybe they've just picked it up later in life, so they've just kind of written it off as something that they'll never understand. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, if I don't understand it, I don't think it, a senior citizen 
would really get like the strains and what everything does yeah. to you and all that kind of stuff. But I just want something that, that makes prices right <laughs> a little more entertaining. Yeah. It's, I, I don't know how they do it, but I, I'm happy where we are. I'm happy that people can get their medicine. I'm happy that people can get anything that takes the edge off. I would rather anybody smoke weed than drink. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just or even a, if it works for you in lieu of prescription medication, like absolutely benzos or I'm trying to think what SSRIs or anything like that. Because if you're dealing with something that's just like kind of more minor, like you have like minor anxiety or like minor depression, and I do like you know. I think you can have like major, I think it's on a spectrum for that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But I think if you just have those smaller issues, they, they can give you a lower dose of those like SSRIs and everything, but then you're still dealing with the side effects of it. And the thing that I personally like about being able to smoke is you can give yourself like, you only can use it if you're feeling it coming on. Like if you, you can't do that with, you know, antidepressants or anything like that. You have to consistently take that stuff for it to be effective. Like this, if I start getting anxious, like if I'm in a crowd and I take a little bit, I'm just like, oh, okay, now I'm good. And then if I need to re-up in an hour or something like that, I can. I just like the control over it. Then you're putting something that's not lab-made inside your body. Well, it's kind of lab-made, but... A little bit lab-engineered. Not, not even in comparison no. to something like that. The other thing, too, that's kind of crazy, and I, I'm, ready to, I'm ready to segue this bitch. Okay. Is... The fact that it's legal in so many places, but the people that are in the prison system, they got arrested for things that are legal now. Have we really, like, ever come to, and I'm sure we have, that's just not going through my head right now, but a situation in which people are in prison for something or incarcerated that's no longer illegal at this point? Because I know in some states it still is, so those ones are, you know, different. But Mm -hmm. have we run into that situation in, in our society? Prohibition, I don't know what they did with that. People that were arrested for bootlegging and things like that. I don't know what happened to those people. And we'll find out when we do a Prohibition episode. Mm -hmm. But what happened to those people after Prohibition ended? Did those people have their sentences, you know, commuted or forgiven or? Well, that's kind of the interesting thing is legalizing marijuana in some states is great great deal like that's you've seen uh, the money top notch yeah you know what and you're you hardly doing. ever hear about like i i still hear far far and away more drunk driving incidents than anything to do with hands down yeah not even close but in the process of doing it there were certain hiccups that states didn't really figure out and some of them still haven't i believe and that that's just me talking out of my ass but at one point in most states, and it still might be this way, if you had a prior conviction still for like distributing marijuana, mm-hmm. selling marijuana, growing anything like that, mm-hmm. you were barred from getting your license to sell legally, which I I don't really get because if you've made something legal that they were convicted of doing, mm-hmm. you would think that that would almost be the person that you would want to like. They only dealt weed because they needed. A money source. Mm-hmm. That's the only reason you do it. That and maybe joy. Yeah. But at the same time, those people were doing it below the table because they couldn't find a better opportunity above board. Mm-hmm. So once it becomes above board, I've met a lot of drug dealers that I would let them do my taxes if they knew taxes. Like they're just great businessmen. Yeah. And to not allow them to 
legally utilize the skill set that they do have yeah. in now a legal manner. Yeah. Especially guys that just did, you know, a year or two for transport or for manufacture or anything like that. Yeah, and then what and then what does that say too if you're like, okay, well, I have this experience that I can now do in a legal manner, but you're not allowing me to do that. So my options are to learn an entirely new skill set or do this illegally again. I, I, which it's much easier for me to go ahead and use the current skill set to do this illegally. I, I was a dope dealer for ten years. It, when you hear somebody say that you immediately think, well, if you just came out of jail, you should probably do something that you know. Mm-hmm. And if you can't get a permit for selling marijuana legally or working a dispenser or anything like that, what mm-hmm. are you going to do? Yeah. You're going to go back to hustling because nobody else is going to pick you up mm-hmm. because you have this permanent mark on your record that's now somehow legal. I know that you've been able to, like, in certain states, go through and vacate sentences mm-hmm. and try to get those things knocked down. But there's still a lot of people that have that F that they have to hit. On and all someone has to do is see that. And that can be an automatic disqualifier. It's Absolutely. not even looking in any deeper into that. And especially you, if their company, like if a company doesn't even have a rule about testing or, you know, any type of like regulations about that yet, they'll, you know, they should probably be looking at that for new applicants and be like, Oh, is this the reason? Okay. Well, this isn't an issue with us. So what are your qualifications? Good. They're all there. Let's mm-hmm. go. You're hired. But when you get that felony label put on you and, when we release people back to the population as much as we do from prisons, like when we were talking the other night, America has the highest incarceration rate, right? We have the most incarcerated individuals and the highest car, um, per capita incarceration rate. So we have both. And we also have the highest recidivism rate, which yes, it, recidivism for people that don't know are when you get out of jail, if you are returned back to jail within a year, they, it's called recidivism. I believe it might go longer than a year, but mm-hmm. usually the stat is within the first year being out. And it's no wonder that it happens when you really look at jails and prisons, because when you look at jails and prisons, you see that it's so much more about punishment than rehab mm-hmm. and rehabilitation and bring people back out with good life skills. That Which, they can yeah, use. and I understand, you know, and this is what we're going to be talking about today was a specific circumstance of this when... In was it 1971? 1971, um, the inmates at the Attica Prison in New York. Um, I, I mean, I guess you could say it, they didn't really start a riot to stop it, but they ended up taking over the prison by force or a section of the prison. It was basically one kind of like courtyard or yard area. best way I would describe it was it was just a final blow off and running over emotions that was violent that could be considered a riot. Mm-hmm. But that riot turned into so much more of an uprising when people realized like this wasn't just because they were mad that they didn't get an extra hour of time. Or outside. they're just trying to be violent or anything like that, like control power and like take mm-hmm. that's that's the thing, though, too, is like looking into this kind of stuff has made me question a lot of the other things that I've made snap judgments about. When you hear about like either like jail riots or um, prison protests from like prisoners like going on a hunger strike and all that kind of stuff, you like you don't really realize because you're not in that position. You're just like, oh, well, they're in prison. They, you know, they should be suffering. They should be being punished. Correct. I understand that that's the whole point of, you know, being sentenced to 
to jail or prison. You're incarcerated. You shouldn't have all of the amenities and you shouldn't have all the joys of life. Shouldn't be you, a vacation. Correct. Your your freedom is already being taken away. What I'm saying is that the whole point of this whole Attica prison uprising was that these guys weren't even being offered basic human rights. <laughs> yeah. They were being beat without cause. They were being um, put in solitary confinement without any you know justification to it for weeks at a time. And it just got to the point where it kept building, like you said, and building and building and nothing got done. And then finally, kind of a match got struck with an incident with two guys mm-hmm. and that lit the powder keg. And then it opportunity occurred where they saw an opportunity and the right pieces were there for the people that had just like <laughs> people that had just come to the prison for inmates and everything. And it was just kind of perfect timing for everything that happens. And it just erupted into this incident. Well, and, uh, prisons in and of themselves are a necessary thing. We have to have it to have a, a normal, good society. Now, that doesn't mean that just because you're sent to prison, like, you're still a human being. Mm-hmm. And I would argue that there are people that aren't human beings that are in prison that deserve to be there and deserve to be there for the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. But... There's so many times when it's such a forgotten part of society that you don't think about prisoners' rights. And immediately the pushback to that thought is always, well, if they wanted rights, they shouldn't have broken the law. Mm -hmm. But not everybody's circumstances are the way that they are by their own accord. And And you could be – and I understand this was a maximum security prison, but you still do have people here that – committed crimes that were nonviolent offenders. Oh, tons. Yeah, let's just get into it. Okay. So, um, like Chris said, we're doing the Attica prison uprising. Um, Attica was a maximum security prison. Like Chris said, it was open in 1931 in Attica, New York. So it was open 40 years before, um, excuse me, the uprising took place. Uh, in it's time, it was the most expensive prison that was ever built. And they spent 1931, $9 million dollars. Did we ever figure out in the Vegas one how much Hoover Dam was? Probably no, keep, hundred. Keep going in all. I, yeah, nine million dollars in nineteen thirty-one, um, and of course, being the opportunists that they were, opportunists probably the best word to use. Uh, it was designed by prisoners from a nearby prison in Auburn. Uh, I think it was Auburn Prison. I'm not sure if it was in Auburn. But they used prisoners to build a prison for more prisoners. Like, just the the most simple thing that you could do. And the most, I guess it's the easiest way for them to do it. It would be the cheapest way. So the cheapest way, and it still cost $9 million back then. Let's see. I'm trying to find out what this would be. So $17 million? That doesn't sound right. It sounds like it should be more than that. $17 million to build Hoover Dam? No, no, $17 million today would be the comparison rate. Oh, 9 to nine, 17? Oh, hold on. It's saying value of 900000 Hold on. Why isn't it saying? Keep going. I'll figure are this out. To, are you doing it in pesos? <laughs> but they built Attica specifically for the reason to mitigate uprisings. They didn't... They didn't want it to happen. It was going to be just something that didn't happen inside 100, the prison. $160 million, Sorry. It would cost $160 million to today? To build it today, yeah. And didn't AT&T Stadium cost like $100 million to build? I don't know. I don't follow the fucking Cowboys. Okay, well, I'm not interested in Jura. Jura Land's pretty sweet, Jura though. Uh, yeah, that's that's an insane amount of money to spend on a prison. And it wasn't like it was they were building it for frills. They were literally building it 
to stop yeah, uprisings. To yeah, to to stop these people Bare from being out. Secure. That's all they cared about. Yep, and security it absolutely had. The outside wall that was around it was thirty feet tall, and it was buried twelve feet into the ground. So if you were tunneling, it didn't really matter how far you went with whatever you had, because mm-hmm. you're not getting below twelve feet. Cafeteria spoons aren't getting yet <laughs> any lower than three to four feet, maybe. It, you had to have time to do it. They had um, the wall itself was two feet thick, so that was a big bitch. Mm-hmm. There was no way, even if you got to it, you weren't breaking through it or anything like oh, that. No. It was right there. And then on top of that, there were fourteen gun towers. So fourteen gun towers around the whole thing. They're going to be watching every square inch of that wall. You're not ever going to have time to get anywhere close. No. You're not going to be able to scale it. You're not going to be able mm-hmm. to dig under it. And if by the stroke of luck that you don't get seen and shot by a guard, there's just no escaping. Well, yeah, at that point with prisons, I'm I'm assuming that, you know, I'm not a fucking prison expert, but I'm assuming that like when they were building new prisons, especially the most expensive built at the time, they looked at all the ways the prisoners had escaped from all of the prisons around the country. And then they were like, oh, okay, we'll just make sure those are all corrected. And then the next prison to come along would do the exact same thing. And if anything new happened at the prison before it, they would just add in security for that. Yeah, they had case studies through years and years of people being incarcerated to figure out what exactly they needed. And the way that their prison was, the way that Attica was in kind of New York back in that time, was they had built a maximum security prison but hadn't quite caught up to filling all the prison cells and beds Mm -hmm. with maximum security inmates. So like you were talking about, there were people in there for murder. And in 1971, more than half of the prison population were serving seven years or less. So you're going to a maximum security prison serving seven years or less. And it was, I think it was 60, yeah, 62% were convicted of violent crimes. So you had 38% of the guys in there that were convicted of nonviolent crimes serving in a maximum security prison, which maximum security holds killers and everybody else, but they weren't separated out. They they were put in these same housing units in these same cell blocks as murderers, as guys that had attempted to murder, like violent people. Mm -hmm. It just seemed like it was kind of doomed to fail at that point because if you go in for a nonviolent offense and you have to go hang out with violent killers and people that rob people for fun and people that have maimed people for fun, like that's just you, you're you're, you're nothing already in time. prison and now there's this whole other element of danger to it. Yeah, so it's like great. Not only am I in prison and everything, this sucks enough. Now I'm have to worry about the element of getting stabbed even more so. Or learn from these guys that have done yeah. much more serious crimes than I have. I didn't even think about that, the interaction between the other, you know, guys has seven years or less, but they're sitting there the whole time hanging out with these violent inmates. Are they getting ideas or anything mm-hmm. like that? The, the only thing that got me arrested was I screwed up this, this, and this. If you do this and you need money, this is a way to get it. Or you're hanging out with those guys for protection. Yeah. Because they it, bring you in and, yeah. You have nothing but time at that point on your hands. Mm-hmm. So they, they've called um, prisons basically like criminal school because you go in being a shitty criminal and you come out being a less shitty criminal mm-hmm. but more of a detriment to society because they don't set you up in a way where you can transition it's, out to a work program to make yeah, money. You're just breeding a bit. You're just essentially it's a breeding ground for like smarter criminals. And that's why I think I told you it was 44% is the recidivism rate. Sure. That's so high. You didn't say you didn't say the percent, you said the highest. Oh. So I don't yeah. Okay. It's just so crazy to me that 
there could be that many people that get out and can't live for longer than a year. So just because we're going to be going back and forth on some names and everything, let's just kind of lay out who the actual players are going to be in this. So at this time, the governor of New York, the state of New York, is, um, what's his first name? It's Rockefeller. Yeah. Is it um, Joseph? Probably should have had his first name up there. Usually when you say Rockefeller, you don't have to worry about it. I know. But, uh... Anyway, so he's the governor of New York. So just to kind of give a little information. So he is in the Rockefeller line, essentially, like the... the Nelson. Old... Nelson? Yep, Nelson okay. Muntz Rockefeller. Okay, so he was in the yeah the Rockefeller, the famous Rockefeller family. Um, I think he still lived as governor in the family estate and... He had these, basically he had political aspirations of being on the president's cabinet or even actually running for office for the presidency at some point. So he, um, his stance against crime and, and this whole situation was he was going to need to be tough on it because he couldn't appear weak, weak on crime as part of his kind of like campaign for the future. We then have the director of New York prisons who is... Russell Oswald. Oswald, that's right. So Russell Oswald, I'm just going to call him Oswald for the rest of the podcast. So Oswald is the director of New York prisons. Now, this guy sounds like a genuinely good guy trying to do the right thing. Um, He actually got elected to the position on the platform of prison reform. Um, He believes that the primary focus of prisons needs to be the rehabilitation of inmates. And he was trying to kind of root out all of the... You know, because there was murmurs going around about treatment of inmates and everything like that. He was trying to make sure that none of that stuff happened on his watch. And, um, yeah, basically kind of acted as an advocate in this situation. But when it came to the feet to the fire, didn't didn't come through. Well, and he kind of played a massive role in the uprising, too. Like, w- the steps leading up mm-hmm. to it. And it just... As a guy, I think he probably had good intentions. Was this where he wanted to put forth his good intentions? Like, this was a very shock to the system. Yes. It was, yeah. They kind exactly. of... Well, I mean, there they had been previous prison riots and stuff like that, but nothing like this to this size and scope had occurred. And I also think that he probably didn't understand the thing that he did that kind of set this off. I don't think he understood um, the impact that he could have had in this situation. It, I think it, he just kind of glossed over and he kind of let it fall to the wayside. It wouldn't have taken much for him to step in at an earlier time and say, Hey, I, I hear you. I see you. I understand what's going on. Um, give me a little bit of time to work and see what I can make mm-hmm. happen. And all you had to do is show up. Um, it, it just, the way that he was, I do want to believe, like, with well, as hard as he pushed through some of the documentaries to try and meet some of their demands. And in to the keep, end... To essentially keep the dialogue going. Yeah. And everything. He, you know, he, he wanted to go ahead and come to a peaceful resolution. That was his main priority. That was his focus the entire time. They, yeah, they absolutely could have just sent the New York State Police in there along with the other guards, which was a very odd choice. Mm-hmm. He could have done that day one. He could have done that as soon as they had figured out what happened. Mm-hmm. He didn't, though. He he gave them time. He gave he tried to give diplomacy a chance at that point, but he just I don't know. Maybe I'm 
criticizing him too much because the players around him seemed to be kind of his downfall. Like yes. everybody else around him didn't want to help, mm-hmm. so he couldn't help. Well, everyone below him was giving him certain information like, hey, we need to go ahead and have a show of force. And everyone above him kind of had the same mindset of the people below him. So it kind of felt like he was in the middle trying to temper all of these, essentially this opinion that they should just, you know, put their foot down and and go in. Yeah, I I think maybe I'm just a little too hard on him because this is, for me, I ran on this topic. I had kind of heard about it, but... Never knew that in the league when Rafi yells Attica, uh-huh. that this is what he was talking about uh-huh. when he yells it. And it's, I think, a pretty common phrase when you're about to commit some crazy shit when you hear somebody yell Attica, whether it be a joke or something. Mm-hmm. But this was a a full-blown, I, I mean, there were deaths, there were multiple injuries, shockingly, well, not shockingly enough, but... More on the taking back of the prison than when they actually initially took oh, the prison. By, by far. Like, yeah. it's not even comparable. I mean, so in 71, and it was at the beginning of September, uh, in 71, there were uh, 2,200 men at Attica. So 54% were black, 37% white, um, and 8.7% spoke only Spanish. And they were pretty much all Puerto Rican. Mm-hmm. So 80% of the inmates hadn't finished high school. And the conditions of the prison, they were. You know, you got to think this is this was built in 1931. So even 40 years later, like the advance in technology just for everything was huge. was huge. That was after the war. That was after the industrial boom and everything. So, you know, other prisons getting made at this time had, you know, better conditions. So you're talking about using, you know, showers and plumbing that were 40 years old and cells that were 40 years old. And, you know, depending on what the actual because wasn't it overcrowded at this time too? They had built a fifth block okay. and I think that it might have been full at the time. But it it definitely was getting up there. And and it's not getting to the point where they're pumping a ton of money, especially into a prison from 1931 where they're pumping money into this thing for upgrades. Well, so they're they're building more prisons. Yeah, that's all they're doing. So at this point, not only do you have the, you know, degrading conditions that you're living in again, we're just talking from a, a standpoint of basic human rights and needs. Those weren't getting met. Uh, medical care was almost non-existent there. We'll get into this more, but there were unprovoked beatings that occurred. So these guys definitely that needed medical care couldn't get it. Mm-mm. And then, so yeah, so you had the factor of the prison itself having poor conditions. And then the treatment by the guards themselves, the conditions were horrible. Well, and I don't know how much you got into like what their allowances were a month. So I know what they made. So they would make six dollars, sorry, six cents a day mm-hmm. for working, which I think they even said that I'm trying to remember what the name of the prisoner was that they use a lot of. Um, do you remember what his name is? He was the guy that came in from the other prison where they just had the riot. He was like he was kind of the negotiator. It so he was a newer hard. guy. I'm trying to remember his name. He was the guy that got moved from the place that had had an uprising before that, yes. right? Yeah. yeah. I don't remember. So name. he was saying that um, in order to purchase a toothbrush, he would have had to work for six weeks at that pay to save up for a fucking toothbrush. I, and that's just a, a basic human. Why wouldn't the guards want cream? the inmates to have toothbrushes? Like you want to deal with like bad breath? Like I'm. J- well, not them, to mention them to him, man. Like they were allocated a roll of toilet paper per month. Yeah. How in the world can you stretch that a month? I don't know. 
And, you and that's w- not, do you think that's good toilet paper? No, it's definitely one ply at that point. And maybe even half ply. They figured out. You have to like flush, splash water up, try to scrub, dab, and then just air dry yeah. in your cell with your butt hanging out for. There were no bidets in prison. No. Um, Unless you had a good inmate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Unless you had a, or good, a in- good cellmate. <laughs> he had strong squirting powers mm-hmm. with his mouth to clean yeah. you out. But when you think about how much did you say they were making a day? Six cents? Six cents. When you go to the canteen to try to buy more toilet paper, it's going to be at a higher price. Way so higher. If you have to work two weeks to get your next roll of toilet paper, you still have to stretch that one out. Not to mention your other basic Do you rights. want soap? Do you want toothpaste? I think they said soap was a bar a month, too. Um, shampoo, obviously non-existent for them. They didn't really give a shit about that. But oh, they just, Yeah, you just use the soap at that point. These conditions that they were all living in weren't only just subpar. They're just kind of subhuman. Like you, I think they said they gave them once a week to shower, which maybe that helped out because you couldn't use your whole bar of soap up at well, once. Well, depending, I guess, on what time of year it is. Because it was upstate New York, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. I guess, depending. I don't know. I think it probably gets pretty warm in upstate New York. So I'm guessing oh, that yeah. you know the showers once a week weren't exactly the best they could do no and they had sewage problems they had backups in there all the time it just it was in need of repair but at the same time it was almost the practices that they had to go through were so much worse and just the way that they were treated i when i thought about this kind of initially when i first heard about it i thought okay well it must have been like they were angry about something i didn't realize that they were angry about just basic human needs. Well, one of the guys that was writing about it was saying that the prisoners would spend 14 to 16 hours a day in their cells. Their mail was read. Their reading materials were restricted. Visits from families conducted through a mesh screen. Uh, medical uh, medical care was disgraceful. And essentially, the parole system was completely inequitable. And they said that just the racism was just rampant. Well, and going back to what you were talking about with the mail read, there was a point in time where they didn't even allow... Um, letters and anything other than English, like Spanish letters, they wouldn't even allow them into the prison because they couldn't go through and read them because all the guards were predominantly white and they didn't have the time to go through and try to translate these and figure out what was being said in a different language. And if you have eight per seven or 8.7% of the population that only spoke Spanish, those people are just cut off from the outside world completely. Mm Mm-hmm. And, I mean, some other stuff that just kind of led to it was, you know, at, at this point, they they tried to be diplomatic about it. And I'm not saying all of their conditions should be met or would be met or anything like that. But Some of them were nuts. Some of them were nuts. But, like, their initial present, you know, list of demands was 27 demands just involving improving the conditions at the prison. And was this That's, during the uprising? No, or no, no. This, this was what they, they sent initially to Oswald. So this was... To catch you up on what Chris is about to read, um, they just the inmates had had enough. So they had gone to one of the prison lawyers, just another guy, the guy that we keep forgetting his name. I'm I want it. Was it Hunt? Was it X Hunt? Richard X Hunt? Is that his name? Is keep keep going. Um, They all went to him. They talked to him. They said, we need to get this better. He said, let me see what I can do. They draft this list of demands that they're going to send to Russell Oswald. And all it was was, Chris is about to read them, but it was like just this list of somewhat basic stuff, but there also were some pretty out there things. But all this was was just 
almost like trying to open up a conduit to this guy to explain to them what their conditions were because they hadn't, he wasn't touring the prison. He didn't know what was going on on a daily basis. And the reports that he was getting from Attica, from the, the guards and from the, he wasn't a commissioner, the warden, they didn't call him a warden, but he basically, that's what he was. They call him, I think the, I think the term might've been warden. They, it was some sort of a, like a director of the jail, I think is what they called it. Mm-hmm. They tried to basically soften all the shitty names that they gave. Like instead of um, like guard, it was something else. They just, they tried to make it sound like something that it wasn't, but that it totally was. And all they really wanted was to, like I say, open up that line of dialogue with him and let him know what they were going through. And hopefully he would respond. And they were all fairly certain that he would at a time. And it, uh, had come back to the point where they, I think were expecting him to show up. Yeah. So they had written him a letter and it basically, that's what listed out the 27, just like listed demands for improving the conditions. And that's where he had actually responded back and let them know, okay, I see you. I hear you. I'm actually going to make a trip out to Attica. We're going to go ahead and sit down and discuss this. We're going to see what we can do. Mm-hmm. And so I think he said that was going to be within like three, maybe like three days. I can't remember what they said in the documentary. It gave him a time period. Yeah. And so come, you know, come the day that it happens, what ends up happening? Everybody gets their hopes up. Mm-hmm. Everybody feels like this is a new day. They're going to turn over a new leaf. There's going to be some change. And a lot of where this activism came from wasn't from the older prisoners that had sustained the beatings that had gone through the degrading things for so long a lot of the uprising a lot of the push came from the younger um inmates that were coming in because during this time they had lived through the 60s they were out in the public during the 60s they've seen all the protests they've seen civil rights talk and so when they got locked up, they were coming to these prison elders and these guys that had been in their lifers, basically, and saying, this is how shit works on the outside now. We fight, we push for our rights, we push for equality, and you guys being lifers need to get on this train with us because the more you get on with this and the more we can make this a consensus, maybe we can make some changes. Maybe we can affect a world or a country of criminals that they can all benefit from this too. And that activism, I think was probably a good thing because like we've talked about with a lot of this stuff, these aren't amenities. These aren't like you're not getting bonuses with getting this stuff. These are just kind of basic human things that you would need and the treatment that you would need. Like you were talking about with some of the practices the guards had where they would, basically pick and choose different rules that they thought that you weren't following that weren't enforced at any other time. But if you were on their bad side, if they were having a bad day, they would come through and crack it and they would send you away. They would do lock-ins on these guys where I think it was like 23 hours a day. They would stay in their cell or they would take you to, um, basically the hole, I think is what they called it. Right. Well, and yeah, it was solitary. Solitary confinement? Yeah, and what set, I mean, we've talked about kind of what the buildup was and like how it gets set off. So, and I think it was Richard Hunt was the guy that was the newer guy. And he, and when I say he had experience with a prison riot in a different prison, it wasn't like he like overthrew the prison or anything like that. 
he had been present during the riot. I think he had been maybe someone that had spoke on behalf of the prisoners for negotiations, and I think that's why he also may have been moved. So he ends up showing they, up. That's what that's he what did say, I think, in the documentary okay. that I saw, was that they had moved basically all the people that were in the riot, and like okay. kind of ahead of the riot. They had separated everybody out to different prisons so they couldn't, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense because if you have a bunch of guys that you want to send away and try to pull apart from each other so they can't form another uprising, mm-hmm. why would you send them all to different prisons like that? Because all they're going to do is bring the same knowledge that they had had at that uprising. They're hoping to go and deorganize them probably. So what actually kind of set this whole thing off, and I know we keep like bouncing back and forth, so bear with us. Two inmates were out um, actually just sparring in the yard, like doing just light sparring, like friends with each other and everything, just trying to one of them had just recently got out of solitary, and so he was trying to enjoy his time outside. Yeah, it was. I think it was L- Leroy Dewar that was um, the guy that was outside that had just been let out mm-hmm. from the hole. He had just him, been let out from isolation. Yeah, him and I can't remember the other guy's name. So they're sparring. All of a sudden, they see a guard walking over toward him, and he's like, break it up. It's over. And so he they're trying to explain like, Hey, we're not really fighting. And so the guard doesn't want to hear it or anything like that. And so he's like following one of the guys or tells one of the other guys to like move to the other side of the yard. So he's moving. And as he's moving, he feels the guards hand on his shoulder. And just as a reaction, he turns around and he punches the guard. Well, and part of the reason that there was so much confusion was he was out there. They were allowed to, when they were out there in the exercise yard, they were allowed to shadow box. They were allowed to basically work out. And mm-hmm. that's what he was doing. And this prison guard that walked over to him, had initially got him confused with another inmate and yelled the wrong name the first time. Mm-hmm. And so when the guy heard it, he stopped and he looked, but then he heard another name. So he thought they weren't talking to him. Mm-hmm. And by the time that prison guard had gotten over to him and said, Hey, you need to stop this. This is, it's time to stop. You need to go in. He was really confused because he didn't know that he was breaking a rule at that point because it wasn't a rule. Well, and what ends up happening, too, is so the guard gets up, and I don't know if the guard goes after the prisoner, but another guard comes in and essentially breaks up the thing before it can really even happen. It's a small altercation. Yeah. He tells everyone to leave. So he's like, tells the two inmates, he's like, separate, go back, tells the guard, pulls the guard off and goes, tells him to go inside. So I guess the normal procedure for that situation, and maybe this other guy, they did interviews with him, and he talked about how he just had kind of a feeling over the past few months that, again, the tensions were rising. And he felt that looking at the situation, like the fault could be put on both of the people from what he saw. And so instead of sending the two guys, the two inmates, down to solitary he decided not to go ahead and push it because he felt like that could have escalated the situation immediately right there. And I think he'd realized too that the guard had stepped in on. Oh, I think he he, he saw enough have. of the situation to know that it wasn't an intentional like <clears throat> he wasn't it wasn't a real fight or anything like that. No. It was just something that was like misunderstood. Hey, just that little miscommunication to think that it basically kind of led to this whole thing is. Not really surprising because, like you did say, I think he the the main guard that kind of settled the situation. He knew that it was a powder keg, and he knew that there were some things that were about to happen. And he after had the, to he had to go tell the ward. What is his name again? The wardens. Uh, I'm looking right now. Yeah. So 
one of the other things that had happened um, after Dewar punched the guard, and the guard's name was Dick Morey, Morney, um, it had attracted so much attention on the yard that the prisoners had started to circle them. And one of the other guys that stepped forward, uh, Ray Lamori, had stepped in and he had asked kind of what happened. He was just another inmate. And as he had asked what happened, his name ended up starting to be circulated as somebody that was kind of an antagonist in the whole thing. So as the head guard went to the um, director of the warden, basically, he had kind of told the warden what happened. He just wanted to let him know. And the warden decided that the head guard had basically let him let the the guy that was boxing off that a warning doer, the mm-hmm. inmate, he, that he had gone too easy on him and gone too soft on him. And he told the guard, basically, this isn't how we handle these situations. You know how we handle these situations. You need to make this happen. You need to make sure that these guys are punished because the other inmates in the yard see this guy getting away with something. Once he gets away with it, they're going to think that everybody can get away with it, which in a way kind of makes sense. But at the same time, I feel like listening to the guard that's actually among the inmates would probably be where you would want to. Yeah, it was police your eggs. Mancusi. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, yeah, Mancusi basically just here's the thing is you have somebody in a position which I don't run a prison. I don't know how that's got to be the fucking stressful, one of the most stressful jobs. But what I'm saying is that, like, if you have a guard coming to you and telling you about a situation because they're witnessing things firsthand and they have their finger on the pulse and are, you know, seeing the interactions between the inmate. Their boots on the ground. Exactly. Makes a suggestion. You disregard that and basically just say, no, that's not how it works. Go get the two inmates that were fighting and put them in solitary. So they go in the middle of the night. And a bunch of the prisoners see the flashlights and everything of the guards coming in. They open the cells of the two guys, drag them out, put them in solitary. So no one even hears from them. Yeah, well, and the Lamori guy, Ray, was just somebody that stepped in. He wasn't an antagonist. He wasn't a box. He wasn't boxing with the dude or anything like that. He was just an onlooker that came in that his name got circulated. Mm-hmm. So just basically by process of being there and questioning what was going on, he got thrown into solitary. And it wasn't. Like, right after chow, it wasn't after dinner. Mm-hmm. They went in in the middle of the yeah, night. the middle which, of the night. So that also made the prisoners think, like, oh, this is some shady shit. Where are they taking these guys? Well, and... <laughs> so they get... And they, they even asked, like, hey, what, what's going on? They didn't get answers or anything like that. So for all they knew, they could have been taken out and beaten. They could have been killed. Like, yeah. they didn't know. They A lot of them thought that. Well, you saw that Ray Ortiz guy that plays a role coming up. He threw a soup can and ended up hitting one of the guards as yeah. they were leaving. Mm-hmm. Like they, they were trying to fight from their cells to stop them. Cause like you say, they didn't know where these guys were. That's going. not procedures to drag someone out of their cell in the middle of the night. No, not at all. So during this whole thing, I think because of the behavior, the guys that were in, it was block a, wasn't it? I think that was it. So they, the decision was made higher up that they were going to lose their yard time. Was it that next day or the day after it was, it might've been the next day. It was the next day. So they were going to lose their yard time. And a homie that threw the soup can Ray Ortiz was going to be under, I think they called it lock key where they're just kept in their cell the whole time. Mm -hmm. So he wasn't going to be let out for breakfast. Wasn't going to be let out for lunch, anything like that. So 
morning comes, obviously there's still some tension going on because of what happened that night. Anybody that missed it is now getting filled in on all the oh, information yeah. and all the, you know, it's all getting hyped up. So, yeah, just everybody's talking about it, I'm sure. So that everybody out except for Ortiz and just through sheer not paying attention, somebody was able to flip Ortiz's um, switch to mm-hmm. unlock his cell. So Ortiz is let out and he leaves with the whole cell block, cell block A, to go to breakfast in the morning. Um, I think they were actually going out to the yard. I, they were initially going to breakfast, and once they had realized that Ortiz was out, mm-hmm. they had to find him because he was supposed to be under lock key. So when they get to breakfast, everybody realizes that Ortiz is there. He's mm-hmm. not still in his cell, and they have to figure out, A, how Ortiz got out, and B, who let him out. And so after they were leaving, um, just the way that Attica was set up, there was a place that they called... Uh, Times Square? Times Square, yeah. And Times Square was kind of like a, a middle staging that led to... It's kind of like the nerve center in the middle for like the guards to hang out, sort wasn't of it? Yeah. That, but it was a way of transporting prisoners where there were hallways kind of that led to... It was like to, a concourse almost. You would walk like, think of like a stadium, like a long... I, yeah. I envision like a long hallway. Mm-hmm. And I think that was leading out to the yard. And it led out to the yard, but it also led out to everywhere, all the other blocks. Okay, it was, it could just, you could so, get anywhere and everywhere. Yeah, you could go through and close different doors in around there to make sure that there weren't people that were going where they shouldn't go, and they could kind of lead them like cattle to where they needed gotcha, to go. Gotcha, okay. Okay, so, before, before we find out what happens next, I gotta pee. Okay. Okay. Doors got locked leading out to the yard, mm-hmm. but there were guards with them. So like, and not a lot, just like guards that were escorting them out. So well, they get to the end of this hallway and find out that the doors are locked. And then yeah. what, what kind of sets it off at that point? Was it the fact that it just like someone just took a swing at someone or? They, as they were trapped in that hallway, um, the people that were running Times Square were not, like you said, they weren't in on it. They didn't know what was going mm-hmm. on. They didn't know anything about the yard time. So they get to the gate and it's closed. They closed the gate behind them initially because they thought that they were going out to the yard. Yeah. So the officers took that, excuse me, chance to try to find Ortiz, one, in the, the hallway there because he wasn't allowed anything. Mm-hmm. So he needed to go immediately back to his cell. And... As they were trying to find him and as they were trying to figure out um, sort of like how he got out and how he was let out, it the inmates had realized that they were basically outnumbering the guards at that point. Mm-hmm. And they knew why they were coming after Ortiz. They didn't want him to have to go back into luck. Because they also didn't know what they were going to do to him. And they also probably didn't. They still didn't know what happened to the other guys. And they weren't going out to the yard. Yeah. So you have all these combustible elements in this little area, and um, they had opened up, once Times Square had figured out, I think they had opened up either to try to get other guards in as things started to escalate, or they just opened it up. Mm -hmm. But it allowed, as soon as everything broke out, and when the fighting broke out between the guards and the inmates, there were inmates that were still swinging on these guys but at the same time it wasn't everybody that felt that way and the muslim population inside the jail was i think fairly decent mm-hmm. they they had a pretty wide-reaching impact and once 
these inmates had started to see some of the guards get the shit kicked out of them. Just on pure instinct, they were trying to get them out of the fighting. They were trying to save these guards' lives because they didn't think that that's yeah that because was it was the reprisal on. would be against everyone. Oh yeah. Uh, one thing too that I can't believe we missed over when we were talking about Oswald. So prior to this mm. happening, the reason why tensions were so high yeah, this is, is because, bad again, Oswald had communicated with them that he would be showing up to the prison the day of. They get a letter, or was it a phone call? A recording. So Oh, a recording. The jail had this system of PAs, and I think it even had headphone jacks in some of the cells where they could plug into basically prison radio mm-hmm. to listen to, which... Nobody probably had fucking headphones because they were probably a billion dollars and it would take them 50 years to Mm -hmm. get them. So he had told them that he was going to make an announcement. So everybody was listening to the radio and basically all the announcement was was to tell them that he was going to be working on their behalf. He had their list of demands. Um, He was going to see what he could do, but he wasn't going to be showing up to the prison. So at that point, they felt completely dismissed that they were just getting the runaround again. So that's also why the tensions were so high. So a combination, again, of things about the guys getting taken out without information. You know, they didn't know where their two, you know, two of some of these guys' buddies were. It, it, yeah, he Oswald showing up was kind of their hope for change. Mm-hmm. And as soon as he didn't show up, as soon as he broke that promise of wanting to come there, like he had said in his letter, then it became almost like there was... Not really a whole lot for them to... Well, there were reprisals, too. So Mancusi actually um, restricted their reading access or and a few other other privileges even more so after he found out that they wrote a letter and sent it to him. So, I mean, it, it was just all... All of it came to a head. So what ends up happening, from my understanding, is that the inmates are um, beating up the guards. Several guards, like one or two of them, make it back to Times Square and are pounding on the door to let us in. They open it, let one guy in, close it. They're trying to make sense of what's going on. Another guard comes in, pounds on the door, let us in, let us in. So two, these two guys are actually beat up pretty... One of these guys is beat up pretty bad um, at the end of getting in here. I can't remember what his name was. He's the guy that... Lieutenant Kelsey and Curtis were the two that got the shit kicked out of okay. him in the hallway. Um, Yeah, the guy that you were talking about... Uh, I can't remember the name of the guy that got into it. Anyway, one of them does get beat very, very severely. Yeah, this wasn't the guy that's coming up though. So I'm not sure exactly how it happens if some if they're just trying to get people out of that hallway and coming back, but those doors get unlocked out to the yard. Mm -hmm. So the the prisoners are able to make their way out to the yard. When all is said and done, when they do get out there and kind of the dust settles on this thing, is they have is it ten ten guards. Uh, nine or ten? Are you talking that they've taken out to the yard as prisoners? Yes. Uh, they had ended up taking, what was it, 50 prison employees that were taken hostage. Um, and they did end up releasing 11 on the first day. Okay. Just kind of as like bargaining chips. Okay. But yeah, 50 prison employees were taken hostage out there. And these guys were... Definitely treated poorly in the beginning because obviously if you're mm-hmm. taking hostages, you're not doing it in a polite manner. And so I'm sure they were scared shitless at that point because they didn't know if they were going to live or die. They didn't know if they were bringing or being brought out to the yard to be murdered. Mm-hmm. Um, so as they had started taking it over and they'd gained all these hostages, there were, like I said, the... I, 
they kept referring to them as the black Muslims. I I hope that they probably were all encompassing mm-hmm. and took in everybody. But the Muslims surrounded them and stopped them from harm. Like they they stopped them from getting their asses kicked. They stopped them from basically being killed because they they knew at that point in time that a they were good bargaining chips. B it wasn't right to do to another human being. They really practiced nonviolence. They, that's what they preached. That's what they practiced. They didn't want to see any harm fall to them. But also, I do believe that there was a good chance that they were thinking about it as in terms of having a bargaining chip. Oh, definitely. And again, I'm trying to look up this guy's name. The, the guy that he had just got there, and he was the guy that kind of they turned to yeah, I couldn't find him either. And I feel horrible about... Hmm. Cut it for a sec. Let's listen to the... All right. We'll be right back. We're going to find this for you guys. Okay. So we got the guy's name. So it's a... There was a guy that did come over from another prison. Um, what was... Adewale? Omawale. Omawale. So he had spoken to another guy within the prison that he asked for his advice kind of um, on this rebellion in the right and everything, how to handle it. So Richard X. Clark was actually the leader of the black Muslims within the prison. He was one of the guys that after they took over and they didn't take over the whole prison. So they took over just a portion of, I think it was the prison yard of cell block D, right? Yep. Okay. That was it. So how many people were out during this? Uh, half the prison population they ended up was getting there. half the population out during this whole thing. Which okay. obviously they went through and through other cells to bring other guys out. Yeah, they, were, they were trying to basically liberate the and, whole prison. And part of the prison was still held by the guards and locked down because there were meetings that still took place within the prison from the negotiators and everything. And that was them going through and taking over as they'd realized that they were kind of pushing the rebellion mm-hmm. out into the yard. Yeah. So uh, Richard Clark, so he's going to kind of act in this situation as the negotiator. Um, he's kind of elected by a group of prisoners and this isn't like they're going out to the yard and just like trying to destroy stuff. So basically once they get out there after a little bit of time, they start actually getting organized. Um, any of like, they go and get medical supplies and start moving out medical, I think and like food supplies out to the yard, um, start getting them organized and everything. They have this long row of tables that are going to be their negotiating tables. And then they have an area where they're keeping a group of the hostages they brought a whole bunch of like the mattress and beds out and they're all just sitting there. Yeah. So it wasn't, they were blindfolded, which I'm sure that being blindfolded in that situation was just quite a mind fuck. Just having no clue, but knowing that you're just completely in danger, but literally having no idea what's going on around you. Just hearing stuff. I, I, I bounce back so much back and forth with this. And this is something that I thought, and I don't know if it's something that you thought too. Like I, I feel for the guards that were taken hostage. Mm-hmm. There's part of me, though, that I not every guard, I'm sure, was being degrading. Not no, every I'm guard sure was being were, a shithead. No, they, I'm sure there were just, you know, I'm sure it wasn't a majority of them, but I'm sure the ones that did it did it a lot. Well, and then the other ones stood by and let it happen. Yeah, so they, I mean, but that, I'm not saying that if it was a guard that beat someone and, no, and at no point, or sorry, up to this point, nobody has been killed. Um, no, not to this point. There will be people that die during the initial takeover, but not to this point. So at this point, they're kind of organizing. They select, um, Richard Clark to be kind of one of the spokesmen and 
um, was it Oswald has made his way down at this point, or is it Man- Mancusi is initially who they start to try to negotiate with? Which wasn't going anywhere because all Mancusi no. wanted was his prison back, yes. whether by force or by diplomacy, and diplomacy wasn't on his schedule. Well, in the conversation that when he went to go um, talk to, when Clark went to go talk to Mancusi, you know, they have all the sheriff guards that are left, and then also probably all of the sheriff's department that they could get there within that time frame out there armed. And then they have the prisoners who've kind of busted out some like riot gear and everything. They have like football helmets and like some batons and everything. Yeah. So Clark takes a couple of prisoners with him for protection. And then him and Mancusi come and meet to discuss. And at that point he, you know, he knows that Mancusi is not willing to listen to them. He punished them for trying to make suggestions for improvements and he punished them for it because they went to Oswald. So they know first and foremost that they're not going to get anything from him and anything they do get from him is going to be empty promises. So I think, and he's very cordial about it. Um, he basically tells him, Hey, we're not going to go ahead and have this discussion. We need to go ahead and get Oswald here for, you know, someone that can actually do something. Yeah. And as Clark was sort of starting to list like the demands that they had mm-hmm. for turning over the, the prison back and turning back over the hostages, uh, a guy named Roger Champin starts to organize the rioters into more of like a protest. He started getting the groups of, hey, you seem to know things medically. Can you go work in the triage unit for these people that are injured? Mm-hmm. Um, he was he knew, I think, that at the in, inset of everything, when it all happened, these guys are all have a common goal, but at the same time with the common goal, you have people that are bad actors. You have people that want to go over and try to murder the hostages. So you um, have to keep people busy is the biggest thing too. Cause yeah. the more time they're going to sit there just thinking about it, they're like, you know, is this going to work? Do I have nothing to lose at this point? If I don't have anything to lose, what am I going to do? It, well, and yeah, they're, they're also wild. They still, I don't think had come to grips with it. So they're still, yeah, they're still jacked up. Essentially. They just took the prison within the last hour or so. Yeah. He, uh, Champin knew that they needed to start to form these little groups, like people to take care of food, people to take care they of water. Need to just basically get organized. Yeah. And, he, I think as part of that, he knew that they needed security because, like I say, they were still inmates. Mm-hmm. They just made a very rash decision to do something, so he knew that they needed security. The um, only way that they're going to try to go ahead and – and their goal, of course, is to come to a peaceful resolution on this. Yeah, they, they – all they wanted was what they had asked Oswald for. Mm-hmm. They and, weren't looking for anything else. They and, weren't looking to be freed. They weren't looking to have sentences commuted. All they wanted was – Basic living conditions while they were there. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, part of that is having bargaining chips. And as soon as, you know, I think Clark knew, and I'm sure a lot of these other guys knew, that as soon as they tried to do anything to one of their hostages, that it would be all bets are off. There's no more goodwill in this negotiation. And then they would storm the prison to retake it. So they knew for a fact that, you know, they they weren't going to resort to that. I don't even think that came up that they were thinking of resorting to that. No. But like you said, who did they uh, who they tap for security? Uh, this is my favorite guy out of this whole entire thing, and he was a mountain of a man. Seeing him still like in documentaries, he's just a big dude. His name was Frank Smith, and he was just universally liked across the prison. Like all the inmates, just really found him to be a good dude. White, black, Puerto Rican, didn't mm-hmm. matter. 
his nickname was Big Black, and he's a large man. Like when I think when I hear Big Black, the first thing I think of obviously is Robin Big mm-hmm. and Rob Deerdick and Big Black. This dude lived up to it, except for he was built. I was gonna say the way they described him, I'm, I'm thinking like a, a Michael Clark Duncan. Yes, yeah, that's, yeah, that's a thinking. very uh, a good comparison. He would. Well, and the other thing too still is alive? like who Michael Clark Duncan? No, not for a long time, man. Really? Yeah. There's somebody else that's kind of close to him that looks very similar. That's another big man that's still alive. You're gonna have to come back to this one. Yeah. Okay. So the other thing about um, what was his name? Sorry. Uh, Champion. No, no. Smith. Oh, Big Black. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So Clark goes to Frank Smith. Smith. Frank Smith. So Clark goes to Frank Smith, and Frank really doesn't want any part of this. I think he's in. Was he in his last year? He was close, but he didn't like follow prison politics. He basically was a guy that just wanted to do his time. And he get was out trying of there. to keep everything civil. He didn't want to go ahead and be within the like the negotiations or the politics. And so Clark just kind of appealed to him and was like, "Listen, I know you don't want anything to happen, and I think you're the best man for the job to protect these hostages and to make sure that things don't get out of hand. You're well regarded. Mm-hmm. Everybody, everybody will, listen. will listen to you. And yeah. so he felt at that point that he was obligated to do it." I I think at that point he knew that he I don't think he knew that he would have the super big effect on what was going on. Mm-hmm. I think he knew that he could maybe try to keep the peace a little more because he did have that those inroads built with all the prisoners mm-hmm. where they would listen to him and they would sort of respect his authority in that position because he wasn't he didn't try to take it like you said. He he was approached, he mm-hmm. was asked about it, and... He had trepidation about it. Oh, yeah. yeah. He, he wasn't sure that he wanted to be a part of it. I think the other reason he did it is that he knew he had the best chance of succeeding at doing it. I think that's probably the the reason he did it. That, and I think he he probably was for the cause at that point, because mm-hmm. if they're going to come in and storm, they're not going to separate people and ask them before they shoot them or before they arrest them. Oh, no, we'll find that out. Yeah, it wasn't like a, were you a part of this? Were you not a part of this? Okay, you say you weren't, but you got swept up in Mm -hmm. it. Like, he didn't want the reprisal. He knew that eventually the other shoe was going to drop. So, Champion is basically tapped to talk to Oswald. (laughs) I think they were talking, from what I saw in some of the documentaries... They were kind of talking back and forth across the big wall. That's kind of what it seems like. Through like, like bullhorns. Or between a gate. Yeah, it could have been a gate, like that. too. That's how I see it, yeah. Um, he lists off the requests, and part of the demands that they had were total amnesty for what had happened, which, to me, if something like that has gone that far, your first request is probably going to be total amnesty because mm-hmm. you don't want to be in trouble for what's going on. You want to be around to enjoy the change in which you make. Yeah, yeah. and like you said, and you don't want to be around to enjoy it for forever. Correct, and and at this point, amnesty is not crazy because you're you're not asking for anything outside of like basic human needs and treatment. And nobody's died yet. Yeah. So it, it's not like what you did directly caused mm-hmm. a death. Um... Along with Amnesty, um, they also asked for advocates to come over and see, like, kind of oversee what's going on mm-hmm. in the negotiations that they were in good faith. Mm-hmm. Because, again, these guys were just all a bunch of prisoners. They weren't... There was a couple, like, civil rights people that they had requested. Mm-hmm. and just... it, Well, like you said earlier, 
eighty percent of them hadn't finished high school. Yeah. So how easy is it going to be to dupe a bunch of inmates mm-hmm. that hadn't even finished high school? Yeah. Well, that's why you know is. Again, this is something that you don't think about, but that's why they elected representatives of the people they felt most capable of speaking on their behalf for improving their conditions. Yeah, and originally, I want to say it was like they had asked for 30 people to come in and observe, like a big group mm-hmm. of people, and that ended up getting chopped down. But And they were volunteers, weren't they? Yeah, it, it wasn't. There were a few members from Congress. There were a few, like you said, civil rights people mm-hmm. that they had requested to come in. And after that first day, after Oswald had talked to Champion and they had kind of worked out a few different things, um, there was one of the guys that was with Oswald. His name was Professor Schwartz. And he really tried to work on the amnesty, mm-hmm. like very hard. He he wanted to see a resolution to this happen sooner than later. And really jumped on it and drew it up. And there was a, I believe it was a judge that oversaw that area. Yeah, wasn't it late at night? He had to get it signed. Yeah, so yeah. there was a judge that oversaw basically like writing the court orders as far mm-hmm. as uh, this amnesty that they were trying to grant them. And so um, Schwartz went to go find him and found out that he was on vacation. And I think it was like Vermont or something. Drove up to Vermont. Yeah. He, found out the hotel. Yeah, found out the hotel, showed up in the middle of the night, told him what was going on, and the judge initially was like, yo, I'm in the middle Monday. of my vacation. Yeah, I'll handle this when I get back. Uh, well, that, I'll, I'll just, I'll look over it, I'll get to it in the morning. Mm-hmm. And Schwartz really pushed on him and said, hey, we have to make this happen now. Like, this isn't something that's going to work itself mm-hmm. out. This isn't something that you can come back to on this Monday. This can literally turn crazy at any second. Yeah, yeah. this is, and this is, it started September 9th, and this is, the late early morning hours, like two, three o'clock in the morning is September 10th. Mm-hmm. So you don't know what that time clock is a before. Wow. I keep going a B, but you don't know what that time clock is before there's either going to be force that's used mm-hmm. or those hostages are going to be murdered. So you have time is of the essence at that point. Um, so the judge ends up signing the order for amnesty and Schwartz thought that he got a big win at this point. Oh, yeah. Like he, he was really very excited about it. So he brings that back to Oswald and then it was the next day they, I think they might've been waiting on Schwartz and part of the demand list was that they meet the next morning. Mm-hmm. And I want to say it was at like, they were supposed to meet at 11 or something like that. And Oswald didn't end up showing up until like two. So they've decided that I think they've gotten some of the observers at that point, but they decided that the only way they were going to be able to have talks is where you were talking about in the prison where they had set up the picnic Mm -hmm. tables. They wanted to have these talks inside the prison. So Oswald was literally walking into a prison that was made to quell uprisings to stop people Mm -hmm. from escaping. So he was was walking him and and I, I can't remember how many guards he had with him. Yeah, he was walking into the lion's den, though. There there were obviously way more of them than there were of him and his guards. And I do believe he got let in with a few of the observers at that point and brings the... Um, Amnesty agreement. Yeah, that Schwartz was working on and hands it over to Chapin. Chapin hands it to Clark. Clark looks at it. He goes, this isn't going to work. And Oswald who I'm sure at that point was very proud of what he did, yeah. looks over kind of puzzled and asks him why. And they had found out that 
um, there needed to be a seal, basically yeah, like a notary the seal. And then the big kicker on it was so. In addition to technically not being a binding legally document, binding agreement, so yeah, there was also the simple fact that it provided amnesty up until all of everything that had taken place up to the day before. Yeah, so, so this up is the to next the ninth. morning. So everything they did yesterday and before, it offers them amnesty. So Clark is looking at me. He's like, "What if something happens today? Like, what about today? We're still holding people." Like, this is the exact same situation as it was yesterday. Yep. And then it doesn't have the stamp on it. So they start to lose faith at this point because they don't feel like they're not they're not feeling like Oswald is coming through on what he says he is. No, and he was late. He was late to their meeting. Mm-hmm. So Oswald thought that this thing had been squared away. He got them what they needed. So his thought. So he's not trying to. I want to believe that he's not trying to purposely do this. He's just not paying close enough attention to it, and he's not no. taking it seriously enough. Shown late, when he was late like that, I would imagine that showed to them what are they planning? Like why isn't he showing up on time? Is something going on? Yeah, the outside of this wall is filled with old guards that had gotten out and had escaped and a bunch of New York state troopers mm-hmm. that are standing on guard. They have helicopters that are flying over the top that they're seeing that, excuse me, they don't know if they're going to overtake the prisoner at any point in time. They don't know if he's not showing up because that's the plan yeah. or anything else. Like they're and trying to keep him out of danger. They weren't keeping him in the loop at all. Um, so really after that sticking point had happened and, um, I, you listen to the same thing about the vote that they took. Oh that yeah, Champion and Clark took with the inmates. Yeah, and so <laughs> they're sitting there, and Oswald can kind of feel all the eyes on him now because he's basically walked in here thinking he's providing them with the golden ticket that they wanted, and everything can then proceed, you know, peacefully. When he just figures out that that's not what he has, he's got a sack of shit. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, so a literal sack of shit. He basically, Clark says to everybody, he's like, we run a democracy here. And he's like, by show of hands, how many people think that we should keep Mr. Oswald here with the rest of the hostages? A couple hands go up and everything. And then he looks and he goes, who thinks we should let him go? More hands go up and everything. He's like, all right, you can go. I. At that point, what do you think Oswald is feeling? Like do you... I'm never coming back to I'm never coming back to this spot again. <laughs> or I'm coming back with what they want because this is I, where I, we're I, even if he got them what they wanted, he would not be in that position. Yeah, that's definitely a scary thought to have. Just to think that they were that close. To... Also, in that thought process too, is as scared as you are at that point. What is that? What does that say to you? about the people that you're trying to do this for. That there was an obvious choice to keep you as a hostage, which could have only, you know, been a better bargaining chip. But at the same time, you see that there's also people trying to keep this going in good faith by saying, no, he probably, you know, can be more more good to us on the outside. <laughs> yeah, it... It, and that's really what it comes down to. Is he more valuable to us as a hostage or is he more valuable to us as a basically like a, a good faith negotiator? Mm-hmm. And I luckily for him, they chose that they still wanted to come out of this 
as good as possible. Well, that's all they'd hoped for. They, you know, the option to try to kill the hostages or anything, it doesn't even sound like it was an option. They were literally just working toward just a peaceful resolution. Yeah. Um, so for that whole rest of the day, I think that they were trying to reach out. They went to, I think it was the district attorney of the um, area that Attica was in. Mm. And I don't think at this point, it it wasn't a federal deal. I think it was still on a state level. Mm -hmm. And they talked about wanting to be considered federal so they could be protected by the government against any of the state actors that they were going against, Mm -hmm. that they were riding against or uprising against. And as they were talking to the DA, the DA basically said, hey, we can't do amnesty. Like, amnesty's off the board. This is, we can't set this precedent. It's, they took over a prison. Like, it wasn't, they weren't out playing tiddlywinks on the street and took some dude's wallet. They, they took an entire prison. And so he had walked away from basically the amnesty clause and said that there wouldn't be any, I think it was legal reprisals, is what he said, against the inmates. Yeah, they used some wording to make it sound like there wouldn't be... What what they basically, he stated, were things that are, were already their rights as prisoners. Yeah, it wasn't any anything type new. Of rep- it wasn't anything new. He was just stating it in a way to make it sound like it wasn't already standard procedure. and But they knew that. Yeah, they knew that... Just because they said they wouldn't be hit with any sort of legal reprisals didn't mean that they weren't going to get attacked by the guards mm-hmm. as soon as they were taken back over the yeah. or took back over the prison. Well, and then worst case scenario happens. So on the eleventh, the one of the guards that was really severely beaten, uh, Lieutenant William Quinn, he ends up dying. Um, I'm not. Do you remember how the information gets out on that? They hadn't informed the inmates yet. And it had trickled down to Oswald, and he kind of knew to try to keep it hush-hush because the more that it got out, the more the public sentiment probably would start to wane against the inmates. Like there, Oh, it would have been... I mean, if it got out, then there would have been an immediate push to just retake the prison. Yeah, it, it absolutely came down to trying to, I guess, give the prisoners the benefit of a doubt. And I think it was Oswald that ended up telling Clark that Quinn had died and after the death had happened, like there was no amnesty talk. There was no anything else. It just negotiations basically went down to nothing and they broke down because I think both sides were kind of coming to grips with what was happening. Mm -hmm. And well, can you imagine too, at this point it's what day it's day two, day three. Yep. End of day three. So day three at this point, how much of either of these, anyone slept and your nerves have got to be just completely fried. Like you're trying to basically, you know, um, God, I'm based on the name now, the Jesus, <laughs> the director of prisons, uh, Oswald, Oswald. Sorry. So if you're Oswald, your sole goal here is to try to settle this still peacefully. Yay. When you've got all of these other people, he, his advisors and people that he's asking for opinions on are telling him, you got to show strength of force. You're going to look like shit if you bungle this and you yeah. handle this wrong. You have 
state legislature that's pushing for force because they want this taken care of lickety split. Mm -hmm. You also had the purview of everybody that voted you into that office in the first place. Mm -hmm. On the the predication that you're going to be looking for prison reform and to treat prisoners better. Exactly. You want to portray everything that you ran on, but at the same time you're getting pushback from the government telling you we need to get this taken care of lickety split because it's it's not getting any better. Mm -hmm. Um... Well, and then they ended up trying to go up the chain even more. So, was it a group of negotiators, like, of the people that were there at Attica, like the observers? Do they go to Rockefeller? Yep. Okay. They had gone with him, um, and there were state representatives that were in the negotiators. That was kind of the thing that I thought, like, some of the things that I'd seen in some of the dramatizations, I can't quite tell, like, separating fact from just a good Mm story-type fiction. But it seemed like there were people that were pushing on both sides. There were people um, that were trying to stand up for the inmates, and there was one guy, his name escapes me, but he was a lawyer that came in as... Kunstler? Wasn't that the guy that ran the prisons? No, that uh, that was Mancusi. Oh, I think it was. It could have been. I, I, yeah, we'll sure. go with that. Um, again, we're like eighty percent accurate, but the gist is there. Uh, so he told them that he was going to take up their case for him. Like he was, he was going to make it happen, and he shows up to try to pitch Rockefeller on it. He's a civil rights lawyer. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Um, but he has people on the other side that are hardline pro prison guys that are saying, we need to stomp this out. We need to, you need to not look like a giant pussy here. Well, the thing though, too, with Rockefeller. So he had, you know, did I mention that he wanted to be in the white house? Political aspirations. Yeah. Yeah, So he he was, was, uh, he was a member of the Republican party. So he couldn't be shown if he had those political aspirations to be soft on crime at all. So I think even in his mind, he already kind of had the situation decided. Yeah. I, I feel like that anyway. Well, and I'm sure once he found out that Quinn died, it probably, he knew what was going to need to happen to get it taken care of. Yeah. But the negotiators, they were trying to convince him, hey, you've got to go ahead and, and visit this. If you show up and just even negotiate down to a couple different things, like you could resolve this thing peacefully. And he didn't want to be seen like that, so he declined. No, and I I don't know why he would do that. Like, I I don't know what war that he was winning at that point not to show up, because you would think that... The eyes of the nation are, like, are going to report on this. This was at a time when I don't know... They were probably able to keep this a little hush-hush, but I'm sure it started, like, within the first couple days. But as a governor, why wouldn't you want to be shown trying to go ahead and peacefully resolve this in your own state. How's that not going to make you look like a great negotiator and an even better presidential candidate? Yeah, it's all I hear when I think about that is I don't know. And I guess maybe it depends on the eyes of the nation and what they felt as what should happen at that point. Mm -hmm. But you have to think at that juncture of the standoff, there's got to be more people that want a peaceful resolution to this as opposed to a non-peaceful resolution. And that's just, I think, human nature. And like we said, at that point, I don't think that the nation had found out that Quinn had died. So they're still, I think, more pro 
let's figure out a way to get this fixed. What was Oswald's final proposal? His final proposal came across, um, like we were talking about with the DA, saying that their reprisal wouldn't be taken care of, or they wouldn't face reprisal. It was the RD2 standard protections. Yeah, yep, the standard protections. Which they called them out on, and it's rejected, so... And there was a lot of other things that he had said yes to that he had green-lighted in their basically listed demands. But it just didn't feel like enough without that amnesty because they knew what was going to have to happen. And they knew that if they didn't get that, they probably weren't ever going to see the outside again because all it takes... At this point, there was a... And this is just backing up a little bit, but it was a some sort of an uprising that happened on the east or on the west coast it was uh, i don't remember it, it was a prison on the west coast it was another big prison and there was a an inmate that was killed by the prison staff um it's going to kill me if i don't remember san quentin oh it wasn't san quentin yeah that's where it was it was San Quentin, and there was somebody that was shot and killed by the guards there in an attempt to escape and flee, which is what the guards said happened. But there's a good chance that it was just reprisal from him stepping up and saying, we've had enough of this treatment, this is bullshit. Uh, so they kind of knew at that point that just because there wasn't going to be any legal reprisal, there was definitely going to be guards that were angry with what had happened Mm -hmm. and they were going to be thrown in the hole. They were going to be beaten. They were going to be abused worse than they were before. So without amnesty or any sort of promise that that wasn't going to happen, that there were either going to be like new guards or there was going to be more rules or anything like that they just realized that it wasn't going to be a good deal for them because it was either way, the shoe was going to drop. And I don't know if they decided that it was better to drop in the public's eye or behind bars, but they went with the public eye. So at this point, the decision, the decision has always been kind of the plan. They've always been developing this plan since it happened on how the prison was going to be raided. So at this point, I think they're pushing forward with that plan and they decided to, to go ahead with it. And essentially, instead of there was this kind of weird conflict of who was going to raid the prison. So the National Guard was called in and I think they had like 800 guys. A lot of people. Do this. But instead of the National Guard handling it, it got turned over to the state police. Now, the difference in this being is that the state police, I don't think, had any training in like raids or anything like that. A mass uprising. Yeah. They didn't have any of that, but this was also the people that had been here for like the last three or four days, watching all this kind of stuff happening, getting more angry. Um, Some of the guards inside could have been their friends or something like that. So you have people that have now an emotional, you know, attachment, attachment to this issue. And they said they were out there getting their shotguns, loading up their shotguns and everything like that. And there was a guy that was with the National Guard, and I don't think he he wasn't the um, commanding officer. He might have been a step down below the commanding officer, and he was looking at the situation. And he went up to his commanding officer and he's like, you got to take the state police off of this. 
he's like, why, why are we not going in there to, to do this? Like we have training in order to go ahead and do this. But these guys have also been out here. I can, I've heard these guys conversations talking about how they can't wait to use these shotguns. It's not a situation that would garner using a shotgun no. to solve. So he, no. So he goes to his commanding officer and is trying to tell him, Hey, you need to go ahead and can we request that we go in or at the very minimum, we go in with them to kind of temper everything to make sure that nothing, you know, is, you know, nothing horrible is happening. Uh, and he ends up getting uh, his request turned down. There's no emotional stake into it for the guard. Mm-mm. They they know what they're doing. They're specially trained to do this. Yeah. State police aren't. And not to mention, not only did they let state police come in, but they also, the guards that volunteered to go in that worked at the prison were also mm-hmm. going in. So you're going into it with an animus towards violence mm-hmm. because you're really angry about what happened. And from there, things just get really, really muddled. Um, They had taken eight of the hostages up onto the catwalks and held knives to their throats as, I don't know if it was a show of force. I don't know if they had maybe started to feel the heat that something was Mm -hmm. going on. Like a back back off maneuver. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Something to kind of make them second guess raiding the prison. Um but unfortunately, this happens September 13th, the morning of. And at 9.46, they cut all the power to the prison. So any anything that they really had that was run as far as lights or anything like that, everything was cut off. And they played a warning over the loudspeaker that basically told them to surrender peacefully, um, drop to the ground, drop any weapons that you have go into the prone position and you won't be hurt, which immediately as soon as the state police raided. And as soon as the guards came in, it just all bets were off at that point. Well, one of the guys was giving a report. Um, one of the prisoners in the yard and he says, I saw a helicopter flying toward us. And I thought for a second, I was like, Oh my God, I think that's governor Rockefeller. I think he's showing up kind of in the, what do they call that? Like the, 10th hour or whatever. Right. Yeah. Right yeah. at the end, the 11th and, hour. Um, he's going to negotiate with this and, and this whole thing is going to get settled. And then I think as he noticed that one, he noticed another helicopter that was coming in. It was like, I don't know what kind it was, but it had like metal canisters under it. And it's how they launched like the tear gas into the, mm-hmm. into the yard. So he said they launched a bunch of, it was like either tear gas or I don't know if it was like the, I don't think you can use that white phosphorus stuff. But the way he described it was that, like, he started, like, coughing up blood, like, after being in this gas. And then, like you said, all of a sudden, the state police, along with the guards, just plowed into the prison yard wearing gas masks. Uh, yeah, they were they were ready for what was going on. This is a coordinated effort to bring it in. I want to use the word attack, but at the same time, there's that weird feeling of saying attack... Or a prison that's been taken over by prisoners. Prison. Yeah, it's it. And uh, one of the things too that the, the one of the national guardsmen, the guy that I was talking about, that was talking to his um, commanding officer, he was like, "They don't have weapons. They have like blunt weapons and mm-hmm. everything like that, but they don't have guns." Yeah, they don't have guns. Like we can go in with guns and everything like that. We have rifles, but at the same time. These guys have to get. These guys know they have to get close for shotguns. So I mean, they end up coming in, and from just the the small descriptions that I uh, 
picked up in the documentary, there was examples of one of the guys was over by one of the guards that was still sitting on the ground, mm-hmm. and he goes to grab the guard to pull him out of the way, and they said one of the, it was either a state policeman or a guard, comes through the smoke and just pulls up and fires a shotgun blast at him. Um, he said he falls down. He's got like three holes in his side. He looks over the guard, one of the hostages, his face down with blood pooling out underneath him. The guys run up on him, flip him over. He's trying to tell them he's a guard. He's a guard. Instead of helping him, they just look at him and move on. Another one said he saw a guy, like an older prisoner, um, end up getting like kicked uh, to the ground by a guard, and then literally the guard just stood over him and executed him, or the state police officer. Uh, yeah. And a lot of this stuff didn't like come to light until long after this had happened. It, I, there was no, it wasn't a good faith mission. This wasn't to try to save the hostages. It was, re- it was revenge. It was all these days of pent-up anger for having to be there and just what had happened before that. And they said in the first 15 minutes, there were 38 people that were shot to death and over 80 wounded. In the first 15 minutes, it ended up being um, 10% of the people in the guard were hit by bullets. In the yard. Is that what I said? You said guard. Oh, okay. In the yard were hit by bullets. So... 10%, I mean, I think we said about half of them were there, so that was 1,100 people. 10% of 1,100 people is 110 people that were shot in the first 15 minutes. There there was no peaceful resolution that was going to happen. There was no drop to the ground and you'll be okay. Like, it was, this was a full-on attack. And at this point, I have convinced myself to use the word attack because it wasn't, I think you can consider an attack because, guess, you know, not just prisoners died. Who else did the state police and the guard end up up killing? Uh, Well, yeah, that was it. A fourth of the hostages that were in there had died. So uh, the the media had tried to spin it and say that the hostages um, were found as slash marks across their throat because they knew that the inmates had had sharp weapons. Mm -hmm. They had ground down shears and everything like that. But... In the aftermath, originally or initially, it was the inmates that had killed them. But once they had really dug into it, they realized that these guys had bullet holes in them. So they weren't discretionary in where they were firing. Mm-hmm. They were firing for revenge and ended up hitting and taking out some of their own that they were supposed to come in and save. It just it, the whole situation could have been done in a completely different manner that would have led to less deaths, no deaths at that point, but they just, they didn't want to. They were out for something over just taking back the prison. Well, and then what ends up happening is that after it happens, they report back to Rockefeller because he had had to be the one that approved, like the military had to, or the National Guard had to have him approve the plan for them to, to go on with it. And he ends up getting a call from Richard Nixon after it had been resolved and basically the gist of the conversation was making sure that none of the blowback of anything that was done poorly or wrong during this raid, um, should see the light of day and to make sure that it's covered up. And Rockefeller pretty much told them that, yep, it'd be taken care of. 
well, had a little buddy moment where he's like, maybe one day you'll take my job. He's like, not until your second term is over, sir. Ha ha. Yeah, looking back at our, our Nixon episode, he was embroiled, I think, right around this time. He was probably drunk as shit when he had this conversation. Probably. It Wasn't was, Rockefeller... Um, who was after Nixon? Kennedy. No. Wasn't that, it? That was before. Who Who was the one, remember? Oh, Ford. He pardoned Nixon. That's what... Yes, yes, up. that's right. Wasn't Rockefeller Gerald Ford's vice president? Ooh. That's a new twist. I didn't think about that. that I think Gerald Ford. But Ford was a Democrat, wasn't he? No. Nelson Rockefeller VP. Oh, shit. Okay. Yeah, so... So, no, yeah. Because Gerald Ford, if had... Gerald Ford been a Democrat, he wouldn't have pardoned Nixon. No, that's probably true. Oh, yeah, yeah because remember, he was trying to do it to salvage part of the party. He, he wanted to let the country he move on, is what he list. said. So, yeah, I mean, this apparently didn't scathe Rockefeller too much if he ended up being a vice president after this. So he... He turned out okay... Um, unfortunately for being a member of the either prison staff or some of the inmates, it didn't turn out okay. Um, there ended up being 1,250 survivors, and I think that probably was including the hostages and then just maybe some other miscellaneous people. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was 39 that ended up dying that day, which... Uh, is a lot. And they had found, um, a couple inmates that had been killed during the initial taking over the prison. But for the most part, the casualties came out in that yard. It came out in D yard where this uprising going for just simple rights, just didn't make it out. Yeah. And everything got covered up. Oh, one thing too is, when, um, from some eyewitness testimony of some of the prisoners that survived and were in the yard at the time, they, um, said that the officers or the, the state policemen or guards had taken off all of their identifying markings. Oh. So any of their names, badges, like anything that would identify them to be able to link them. There was entire groups of, of either state police or guards that had, taken that off so they wouldn't be able to tie any of the things back to the individuals yeah they wouldn't think that it was them that were doing the shooting that ended up killing them yeah exactly yeah man it it, there were pretty big reforms that followed and things i think did get a lot better but all their requests were met and still to this day i mean this happened in 1971 so we're what 51 years later Mm mm-hmm You still see subpar living conditions for inmates and kind of like what I said in the beginning, it's, it's not supposed to be a vacation. It's not supposed to be fun times. You know, it's supposed to make you never want to do it again, but it, the whole thing is, and I mean, you talked about this is that if, if you're just, if your focus is only on, you know, the punitive and the, the penalty, what, are they going to contribute when they get out? Yeah. That's why, you know, the recidivism rate is so high is because like, I understand that like there's people fuck up. Everyone fucks up. Some people just fuck up to a degree that happens to align with the law that they break and they do some really dumb shit. 
I think that most of those people look at that and say that was the darkest time of my life. I never want to do anything like that again. But that also need the tools to make sure that they never have to feel like that's an option again. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not saying like give them college courses, but like you said, like a lot of these people, and I'm not saying that this is the current, you know, the current way that the prison system is right now, but that huge percentage of them not having even a high school education. You could finish high school education for those people, and when they got out, they could go into, you know, and try to be productive members of society. And if that's what their focus is on while they're rehabilitating in here, the chances of them learning skill sets to make them a better criminal, it reduces that. Well, yeah, it would be one thing if looking across prisons all across the world, like if you gathered world data of this kind of stuff, other countries don't deal with this. Mm-hmm. And they do. They see that other countries don't deal with the recidivism rate this high. And it's mostly because other countries set people up for more success. I think they've grown with it. That's the thing that I think the issue is, is we just decided that like this, this is the standard for prisons, regardless of how much time has passed. There's never anything new introduced that can know to, to a mass scale that would affect change. I don't feel like there's anything introduced to really help. I think other countries have been like, how can we like, better this aspect of our society how can we get, actually let's go ahead and work toward getting rid of this entire aspect of our society yeah let's make it to where when these people go in and they come out they never have to think about going back in and eventually maybe we don't have to have a system maybe it can shrink well it, uh, we'll go through and teach all these prisoners like how to balance a budget how to have redeemable skills to go out mm-hmm. in public and they're not going to go out and become bankers or wall street you know guys what it takes to do I'm not saying you got to hire a fucking college professor to come in there, but what I'm saying is you could take the computers that a school is getting rid of when they upgrade computers, put them in there and just let people take online courses that are cheap, just like even instructional videos that aren't like college courses, but you could give someone the skill set necessary to survive out in the world and not feel so desperate that they have to turn back to the shit that they did before. And I think there are those courses to a certain extent, but I think a lot of those courses are more to be time filler for what these guys have to do on the inside than they are mandatory. Like you can sign up for these things, but they're not teaching them anything to mm-hmm. give them a leg up on you the outside. You have to have that desire is what you're saying. To, to, you have to want to take those courses and have to seek that out. Yeah, exactly. And there's... Hey, don't quote me on this either, but I'm pretty sure at this point in time we have more people in prison for nonviolent offenses than we do violent offenses. So the prison system, maybe look that up. That might be something I regret saying. But the system is set up to keep these people inside for a certain amount of time and then they're left to their own devices. And like we've talked about through a million of these episodes that we've done, the starting line for everybody isn't like, it's not concrete. It's, it's going to be different for everybody. And if you have to grow up in a life where you don't have a solid family, you don't have a solid community, something like that, you're going to have to hustle. You're going to have to figure out how to make your life what you want it to be made. And the people that are kind of raising you, training you on the streets, aren't going to have the same values that everybody else is going to have. So, if you 
if all you know is hustling and trying to make enough money to support your family on the outside when you go in and you don't learn any redeeming qualities or skills or anything like that or how to live a life on the outside again in a a good way, like a, a productive member of society way, then you're going to fall back into the same shit. You're going to fall back into hustling. You're going to fall back into selling drugs. You're going to fall back into robbing people. That's If that's all you know when you go in and you don't learn anything on the inside to come out and be a better person, you're just going to fall back into those same haunts because those bills never stop. Mm-hmm. You never stop having to pay for somewhere to live. Um, it looks like it's close to half, give or take, like 5%. So it might be a little bit more violent than nonviolent, but still if you could cut that down and focus even primarily just on the start with nonviolent offenders, yeah, start with them, start rehabilitation programs with them. And then what do you, you all of a sudden now you drop that down by a certain percentage, then take what you've learned on that and focus in on violent offenders and add additional rehab into that. But even half dude, half of the amount of people that are in prison didn't commit an act of violence. Mm-hmm. And even if it's close, if it's 40%, 45% or whatever, that's a large chunk of the population mm-hmm. in the most prisoning country in the world. Yeah. Like there should not be an entire private industry predicated on prisons. No, you shouldn't be able to say, Hey, this guy has a number on him. If he's in your prison, that's the amount of money that you get. And whatever you don't spend on him, you get to keep yourself. Mm For-profit prisons is the biggest bunch of bullshit. The prison industrial complex, and this is, I'm starting to sound like a a very passionate person about this stuff, but it, it really is a, I mean, you get paid to lock people up. You get paid to house these people. Mm -hmm. And the more money that you make off of these, the more money that you get to keep. So why would you not do that? I I, I get it. It's it's a fucking terrible business to be in. Mm -hmm. But those people won't ever stop being in it because they keep getting that extra incentive of being paid for it. And uh, prison conditions now are definitely better than they were at Attica. They said that they weren't even coming close to the average caloric intake that a human being needs to survive and thrive on the inside. Whereas now they do it, but they do it in fucking gross ways. They're not serving normal food. They're serving shit to these people that are meeting the caloric intake, but they're not even in that basic need taken mm-hmm. care of. And if you can't get those kind of basic needs, how are you supposed to try to be a better person when you get let out? Yeah. Yeah, if you just are angry all the time. You yeah. feel you feel just angry and you feel like you're just being wronged all the time, which, you know, that's got to be somewhat of a feeling in there, right? And you just get angry and you feel like you just fuck, fuck society. Like they turn, you know, look what they did to me. Look what they're doing to me. Not to mention you have one bad day. You have one incident where somebody crosses you the wrong way. You throw punches. You get sent to solitary confinement. And I'm a, as somebody that lived alone for a long time, which probably wasn't the best thing ever. In a situation where you're being left to your own brain for 23 hours a day, 24 hours a day, not seeing anybody Mm -hmm. else, not having any other communication, that's, uh, I mean, if you don't go insane in that situation, it's a miracle. And solitary confinement, I mean, I I get the premise of it. I understand that there needs to be punishments for things that happen in jail, but solitary confinement to me seems very cruel just to, I'm surprised they're just like, can you imagine if there was as much research done in the field of the psychological aspects of um, 
rehabilitation that prisons could use versus like the amount of money that gets put into that kind of stuff for like marketing for like a goddamn like fucking beer. Like the amount of research for like what colors are appealing and all this kind of stuff. Like if even some of that like was just put in, not by beer companies obviously, but if just the research was done, I really think into like the mental aspect and how you can mentally, because that's the whole thing. Is it, is it a, mentally it's not healthy. I get that it's supposed to be almost like a physical punishment as well because you're trapped somewhere, but like you can still have that aspect, but then try to find out what the root cause, that's what therapy is. It's finding out the root cause of why you did something or why you feel a certain way. Like if you can find out the root cause, maybe you can help these people a little bit more. But instead, you go the opposite direction. Shouldn't that be a point of pride in a country? Like, other countries that they don't have this huge enterprise for, for prisons, that seems... Like, I look at other countries, and I'm like, fuck, good for you. Yeah. Like, how do we not have that desire to do that? Like, if anything, we're just like, guess what? We're building another prison. This one's going to be super fucking cool. Uh, yeah, instead of spending money on the people that are already in prison to try to make them a better person and, and an asset to society. And I get that people are like, yay, more jobs. We're going to be able to get jobs at this prison, which is awesome for that community. But at what point does someone go, why are we still fucking having to build prisons? <laughs> for real, yeah. And it's a what lot are, what of... Are we, how are we not clearing out room at the other prisons... By getting these people back to being productive members of society, that these new people can't fill their spot and again do that, become productive, go out into the world. And to have the outreach programs to send these people back out into the world with some major success to where they want to pay it forward to come back in and explain to these people, I know this is the darkest point in your life. Like mm-hmm. you said, a lot of these people are in here because of the worst moments of their lives were taken out, and this is why yeah, they're show there. Show them examples of people that have followed the process and it's worked for them. Absolutely. So, I have no idea what the fuck I'm talking about. This could already be implemented and just be a giant failure. I got uh, no clue. Uh, well, I mean, judging by the fact that we're still building prisons at the rate that we are, it's uh, obviously it's not something that's gotten better. Um, one of the things that I looked up and even I was shocked by this because there was a, a guy that passed away recently, um, outside thankfully, but this guy named Albert Wood Fox spent nearly 44 years in solitary confinement. Like cumulatively, like throughout his entire sentence, I just 44 total years. And that was a long stretch. I think together, they said that it's the longest, um, running consecutive solitary sentence in this country's history. So 44 years of being locked down by yourself, separated from every other that to an animal. No, without getting neglect. You wouldn't. But, and I get, like I said in the beginning, I do believe that there's a lot of people that get sent to prison that aren't human. Like there's, we're not talking about a happy, we're not talking about even a standard situation of a prison. If we were just sitting here talking about a regular prison where everything was done on the up and up, yeah. I mean, you probably wouldn't have any. This is just something that was so ass backwards in the wrong that not a lot of people know. I definitely didn't. No. And it's when you think about prison, the first thing that jumps out at you is probably murderers. Mm-hmm. The second thing that I think would jump at you is probably like people that touch kids or people mm-hmm. that beat women, which are not good things. And that's why prison should be there. What gets so lost in the shuffle of all these bad, violent crimes that are just crimes against humanity are the people that get caught with 
an ounce of drugs mm-hmm. that are in there for two or three years for transport. Or they, or they shoplifted, or they, or I, I guess it wouldn't be shoplifting, wouldn't get you into a... If well, you actually, steal enough. they had the guys that weren't supposed to be at the max. Um, you, you stole a car or something. I'm not saying that these aren't crimes. What I'm saying, though, is that a lot of these guys, like you were saying, the average was, what, seven years left on their sentence? Yeah. Which means that you also had people that were months away from being let go. And could have gone back and had plans or had families to rejoin. And probably when they stormed the prison, some of these people could have been not doing anything but just trying to get out of the smoke or anything and got shot. Like, uh, Yeah, there, there were people on the ground that were shot. There mm-hmm. were people that gave up and surrendered that were shot. And my guy, Big Black, um, that we were talking about earlier, once he did get out, he basically transformed his life into making sure that the people that were affected by this riot that they were by this uprising the the inmates did end up getting some sort of reprisal did you hear what they the what they put him through after the guards i i i know that it was bad i didn't read what exactly it was so they had him they stripped him naked and I'm not sure how far after this happened, if it was like, you know, they got him to, if they were keeping prisoners in a tent or whatever it was, they got him naked. Um, one of the things they did is they said they like strapped him to a table at one point and were like dropping, like give him, putting like cigarettes out on his body. Um, trying to remember all what they were doing. They made him stand up and they gave him a football and they had him tuck it underneath his neck. Like hold chin, it. Yeah. And they're like, don't drop the football. And they literally just laid into him, punching him. They said they were kicking him in the, you know, in the fucking dick. Just anything to try to get him to, to drop it. He said he never dropped the football. He said there were the reprisals that happened after this until some of this stuff got sorted out was horrible. And this is, end up getting awarded. It, this is after. This is after all of this happened. This was like in the 90s that he finally went back and got awarded Money by State in New York, wasn't it? And, and it, I think it was $12 million. I forgot the amount of plaintiffs was, that were on I there. I heard four. Was it? I, I thought it was a little more than that. but Somewhere that, between four and $12 million. Yeah, well, I think it was $12 million, but it was split up among, I think they said that there was 100 people that signed on to it. Oh, okay. So it was definitely split between, but... Once Big Black got out, he wanted reparations for it. He wanted to be not rewarded because it wasn't a reward situation. He basically wanted his piece of the pie for being treated like shit for so many years. Well, then once these, you know, some of these guys started actually getting out is when the information on this started getting out. So until, you know, firsthand accounts and enough firsthand accounts, because the first guy, first couple guys getting out and they go to try to talk to somebody about this, they're going to be like, no. We can't believe you. You have to then get, you know, corroborating stories together. And eventually you get enough guys out. This information didn't come out until years and years later. Yeah. And at that point, it was. I don't want to say it was worthless, but it wasn't worth a whole lot. It was uh, granted people did find out and their story was told, but it had been so long since it had happened. Yeah, it's no solace to the people that had to go through it. Not at all. And $12 million for going through something like this after being treated terribly and Mm -hmm. then being treated even worse after that until you got out. Like, there's no... uh, These people were criminals. They were in jail for things, but you still have a level... You have to have a level of humanity for 
anybody really. Yeah. Well, thanks for the fun topic. Yeah, this is a. We were on a real hot streak mm-hmm. of goods, and we were, this we is were a getting too. <laughs> we were getting too happy. Yeah, sometimes you got to bring yourself to back. You got to lend perspective about the the bad shit because then it makes you appreciate the the good shit more. Well, and I don't know if it's kind of what we set out to do is just two dudes going over historical events while imbibing in the in the mind devil's lettuce substances. Yeah, but it. To me, it kind of brings things more to a human level to see something like this and realize that, like we've we've had a pretty good life. Like I, I don't know a lot of people that have been to prison. I do know uh, an amount that have been, but it just almost reinforces the thought in your head that everybody deserves something. Even if you have committed crimes against other people, you still deserve some way of life to live that isn't just demeaning 24 mm-hmm. seven. Like you still, there's still some part of a human being inside you that deserves to be treated with some level of respect. Yeah. Seeing, you know, seeing this, it gives you an appreciation for knowing that your struggle really, when you boil it down, is not that much of a struggle. I mean, there are for people, but this does help to prioritize things and have you be thankful that you, you've never had to go through anything like this. And to not forget about it, too, yeah. to realize that there's other people that aren't as lucky as you that have been through this. And I, I'm i sure that we have listeners that have spent time in jail and kind of in the system. And they're just, we need to get something figured out. This isn't a way to have a society. Mm-hmm. Especially when it's going the wrong direction. Yeah. Like, we're it, supposed to be so advanced, like, but we, we can't somehow figure this out. And you see things like they've, I think, shut down a lot of mandatory minimums for some things. And the crime bill that came out in the 90s, it was supposed to kind of head some of the stuff off. And crime numbers did drop somewhat. But at the same time, it may not have been because of this. It may just been because people kind of got better at what they were doing but uh, sentencing somebody to mandatory minimum for having you know a certain amount of drugs on them at one time and judging people because they are just trying to put food on the table not everybody there's people that are definitely in the lifestyle of dealing drugs to be dealing drugs Mm -hmm. and to be that way and to want to be a hard individual but not everybody does it for that reason. People do it to put money on the table. People only commit acts of desperation because they're desperate mm-hmm. most of the time. That's why they called that. Yeah. All right, man. You got anything else? No. I think we're good. All right. Later, guys. Peace. All right, guys. Hey, thank you so much for making it through another episode and uh, sticking with us. If uh, you want to kind of follow up on the next upcoming episodes, get some teasers. Uh, Adam, can they get us on the Twitter? They can get us on the Twitter. Our Twitter handle is historically high. That's historically H-I. Nice. And uh, on the Instagram? Our Instagram is historically high pod. That's historically high P-O-D. And what happens if your social media inept? If you have any issues where you can't figure out social media, our email is historicallyhighpodcast at gmail.com. We set up a landline. <laughs> Just in case. 
Uh, you guys can go ahead and shoot us any question, comments, or even maybe suggestions for future episodes, something you guys want to hear. Yeah, high thoughts, questions, anything like that, we're always open. We'll always get back to you. Hell yeah, guys. See you on the next episode. Peace.